Love that song. So, if you take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, we're going to use this as a springboard text. I'm going to use this uh, and really looking at a topical look tonight. Uh, and it deals with what we just sang about the mind, the mind. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Father, may you instruct us tonight through your word. May you reaffirm to us truth that we may already know. Uh, May you help us to strive for the mind of Christ, that our thinking would be uh, right before you, and that even our thoughts of you towards us would be right. And we're so grateful that you are patient, and that you're kind, and that you're gentle, and that you are God who teaches And we're so grateful for that. And now, Father, just give us ears to hear. May our hearts and our minds be disciplined to listen. Uh, And maybe we quick to apply what uh, what we have heard tonight, even what we've sang. And we just thank you for the privilege of being together, the joy it is to be with your people. Uh, May you be honored in what we're about to do and about to hear. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. So... I read the the great commandment, uh, and I want you to pay attention to the portion of it where the Lord said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And and I would ask you the question, have you ever thought much about the mind in the Christian experience? The mind in regards to even loving God? If you were to go out and ask the world to define love... And they would say, and you would say to them, do you know that you're supposed to love with your mind? They're going to look at you and say, huh? <laughs> what do you mean? No, no, love is a feeling. You know, love is an affection. You know, love is, and, and yes, it does contain that, but the Bible has so much more to say, as you know, about love beyond just feelings and affections. And if love was only a feeling and affection, then we're in all kinds of trouble in our relationships. Because feelings ebb and flow. Uh, emotions ebb and flow. And so, um, I love my wife. Uh, my feelings are not against her, but I'm not always feeling, you know, the love. I'm not always feeling that. But I am committed to her, and I am committed to love her with my mind. I'm committed to love her with all. Love is a commitment that manifests itself in action and in a, sta- a steadfastness, a stick to And Jesus would tell us that this love, this great commandment, It encompasses our whole being. Uh, In the Bible, the heart uh, is not just the seat of affection. In particular, in the Old Testament, we'll find that the heart uh, is also the will, the personality, is the center of who we are. It is everything that we are to include our thinking. And so as I, was, as I was pondering, you know, what would be beneficial and what would be good for us as Christians, uh, even tonight on just this one shot 
so to speak, on a Sunday night. And, and I want to talk about the mind, the mind in the Christian experience. Because we live, for the most part, in a mindless society. We live in a society that is not given over to deep thought. Everything is so fast. Everything is, if you want uh, an answer, you just Google it. Uh, if, you, um, if you would get just a, a con, uh, ask someone to do basic arith- arithmetic, and I would say they'll probably have to find a calculator. Uh, we live in such a mindless society that the age in which to think deeply about difficult subjects is very hard. Is, and that has not fallen on deaf ears among the church. Is I lament the fact is that Christians aren't readers like they used to be. Is that we don't read like we should. Uh, we don't read hard things. We don't read deep things. Uh, I love to share books with people. I love people to share books with me. And if it's not a good book, I'll give them something that is a good book. And so, but it's important that we understand the role of the mind in the Christian life. And I would challenge you to study the mind in the Christian experience. Notice how many times that uh, our thoughts and how we think is given over in the Christian experience. We only have to go through our created purpose and our recreated purpose as as Christians in Christ. Jesus says, if you're going to fulfill the great commandment, you're to love God with all of your being. And that includes your mind and your thinking. You say, well, what would that look like? You know, how do I love with my mind? Because it is a foreign concept. It isn't something that we have to think about with, with great depth. And so what I want us to look at tonight is the mind in the Christian life. And I want to look at it from two perspectives. One, what are our thoughts towards God? How do we, how do we think of Him? And, and you, may, you may sit there and you may think, well, I have good thoughts of God. Well, have you ever had bad thoughts of God? And the answer is yes, you have. Have you ever had thoughts that are not becoming of who he is? And there is, yes, you have. There's a devil that will throw fiery darts of of blasphemy to you. You'll have your own conscience that may not be informed. You look at the disciples. Did they always have good thoughts of the Lord? The answer is no. In fact, it's when they're on the ship and they're out to sea and he's asleep on the boat and they don't even care enough about that is they'll wake him up and they're terrified and they're just gripped with, with anxiety and gripped with emotions. They're not thinking clearly. Their circumstances have clouded their thinking. They wake him up and they look at the master and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? And I just want to look at these guys and said, how could you tell the God who is love that he doesn't care? He's right there with you in the boat. And the fact is, he controls the very storm that you're complaining about. And that you honestly think that he's told you he's going to make you fishers of men. And now he's going to take you out to sea to drown you. Is is that, that's what irrational thinking does. And they were not thinking right about God. So it's important that we kind of go back and rethink our thoughts towards God. Because how we think towards God will go a long way in our joy in the Christian experience. The other side of that is, how do we think God thinks of us? We need to, we need to make sure that we have God's thoughts downward towards us as revealed in His Word. And it's not uncommon for even Christians 
to have this false thoughts towards God, towards them. It doesn't mean they're not Christians. They may think that he is a tyrant. They may think that he's a hard taskmaster, that he is requiring things, and he, he stands ready to pounce upon them. It may not be a large uh, crowd that has that tonight, but it's real. Jesus gives us the parable of the talents. Is what, was, what was it about the, the last guy? He said, I had the one talent, and I buried it because I knew you were a hard master. And Jesus chastised him for his wrong thinking about the master. So it's important that we get these thinking patterns down. Uh, our thoughts towards God and his thoughts towards us. Because when you combine both of those, you can't help but have joy. You can't help but live the Christian life above circumstances. Because you know God for who he truly is. And that's one of the great prayers we should pray. I think it was C.S. Lewis who prayed. Lewis says, Lord, let me know you as you really are and not how I think you are. And it's a great prayer because we have, we have a tendency to create him too much like us. In our desire to make Jesus human, we have, too, we have a, a tendency to make him too much like us. And let's remember, he never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. He's unchanging. And yet we have a tendency to put changing uh, motives or even changing thoughts of his towards us based on our performance. For instance, you could read your Bible three days in a row and you could share the gospel every day for a week and you think God has greater favor with you uh, than if you didn't read your Bible for three days and you haven't shared the gospel in a month. He doesn't change in his love towards you. Your performance doesn't dictate how he views you and how he handles you. The King James, I love this, and the, the NAS does, does so as well. In Proverbs 23, 7, uh, Solomon writes, For as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So the Bible has much to say about the mind, as I mentioned. And so it's important that we get our mind conditioned around what the Scripture says are to be our thoughts towards God and His thoughts towards us. Now that requires the new birth. That requires the new birth, which we emphasized this morning, is the new birth allows us to have what we sang about, the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So the believer has the capacity and the ability to think right. To think right about God and to interpret his right thinking towards us. Now outside of the Lord Jesus... In Genesis 6, 5, the Lord would tell us that every intention of the thoughts of the heart and mind are only evil continually. And we already saw what Jesus said in the great commandment. The mind is very important. If we're going to fulfill our created purpose, then we must learn to love God with all our mind. And it begins with right thoughts of Him and right thoughts of Him towards us. Now, when we look at the mind, it's important that it's not that poor theology that you've heard time and again, let go and let God. He doesn't do that. That's not how it works. Is that you and I are responsible to renew the mind. You and I are responsible to put into our 
our, our memory banks, put into our mind the very things that allows for right thinking. Romans 12, 2, it's interesting that Paul's first real application of Christian ethics, it occurs in Romans 12. Romans 6, 7, and 8, which we're looking at in the mornings, uh, that is the, the, the doctrine of union with Christ applied, the justified life lived. But when it comes to the ethics of the Christian life, it begins in chapter 12 of Romans, and he begins in Romans 1 and 2 with be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so before there's any type of Christian ethics, there has to be a mind renewal that not only informs you of the ethics, but it also orients you around the person of the ethics, which is God's thoughts towards us. And if you would read, and we're not going to look at it, but if you read Peter's first epistle, uh, you will find that he mentions the mind numerous times. He would also say in the second epistle, uh, I call you to remembrance, which is an exercise of the mind. In 1 Peter 1.13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded. And I always thought, why would Peter emphasize so much the mind? It's because what happened to him was a lack of sound thinking. He impulsively denied the Lord. He was sincere. He impulsively made the commitment, I will never deny you. I will, always, I will even die for you. Peter, Peter, Peter. Irrational thinking, rash thinking, you really weren't thinking. And so he writes in his first epistle, and he emphasizes right thinking. And so even in the midst of temptation, right thinking is critical. Because as you think, so you live. You know, what you think about will determine the condition and the direction of your life. And in Philippians 4, 8, you know this very well. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. He didn't say feel these things. He said think about these things. You get the mind right and you influence the heart and it influences the will. That's always the pattern in the Christian life. It's mind, heart, and will. That's how it unfolds in the Christian experience. If you don't get the mind right, the heart's not right. If the heart's not right and the mind's not right, the will's not right. So there is a logic behind the Christian experience. There's an interesting book by Timothy Whitmer. It's called Mindscape. Uh, and he writes about the mind. He expounds Philippians 4.8. And he said this, and I thought it was very interesting. Quote, it is important to remember that the establishment of the new relationship with God through Jesus by faith is immediate justification. But the transformation of our lifestyle and way of thinking is not immediate. It is sanctification. Think about the mind as your operating system. Our minds determine what we are going to say and what we are going to do. Our will to say or do is informed by our minds. And we engage the world on that basis. So the mind is everything. The mind is everything from start to finish in the Christian experience. But I'm, I'm not advocating a pure intellectual faith. That's not what I'm saying. Is that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And knowledge is mind-based. But theological truth that only informs the mind, that doesn't inflame the heart, and doesn't move the will, then it's a futility. It's an exercise of futility. All that will do is fill your mind with a lot of biblical facts, 
a lot of sound doctrine and will make you an extremely proud Pharisee. Is that you will have all this area of boasting within your heart by all this knowledge that you have. And you can woe people with how much you know, but you won't deceive the living God who gives you theology to inform your mind, inflame your heart, and move your will. And so, as I mentioned, we want to do two things. We want to look at our thoughts towards God. And this is not all comprehensive. I didn't, I didn't put it, all these down. I only gave us a few, as you'll see in the outline, three on each category. Uh, there's so much more. Uh, but these are, not true, these are not new truths to you. They're not. I just want to reaffirm the truths that you know. And I want to help you as I need to help myself. I need, to, I need to live more what I know. And I need, to, I, I need what I know to inform my mind, inflame my heart, and move my will. For instance, I know that God is my Father. But what difference does that make when I'm in the depths of suffering? And I'm in the depths of agony? Or I'm in the depths of some very difficult trials? And that's the first thing, our thoughts towards God. I want us to look at this from the standpoint of the Trinity. I want us to focus on the Trinity and our thoughts towards the Trinity, each member of the Trinity, because we walk with the triune God. We walk with every member of the Trinity. We are taught to pray to our Father. We're taught to pray through the mediation of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you'll find that Paul's prayers are Trinitarian. You'll find that Pauline theology about walking with God is Trinitarian. And so we have to have our proper thoughts towards the Trinity. There are Christians, I've heard Christians even say this, and I think it's more of ignorance than uh, on purpose, is, is they, they look at the Holy Spirit as some impersonal power source. I've even heard Christians say, well, he, he, it's, it's, an, it's an it. It's, he's not an it. And so we've got to really, really uh, focus on what we rightly think of God, because as I mentioned, that will determine our joy. And the first thing is this. Our thoughts of God as Father. As Father. Three things about this. The first one is the personal nature of the relationship. The personal nature of the relationship. If you're a Christian tonight, God the Creator has willed Himself and enabled you to call Him Father. Heavenly Father. Jesus would teach us how to pray. We saw that this morning with Al Mohler. Is that he would teach us, our Father who arts in heaven. Jesus mentions the Father relationship with himself over 160 times in the Gospel of John alone. Is he, was, he, he was constantly aware of that. And so when you look at, at the personal nature of God... Do you see him, since you've come to Christ, do you see him as this benevolent father that never changes in his attitude towards you? That he's always looking down up you in a father mode. Now, I know that sometimes we can get the wrong impression of that, especially if we may not be living up to the characters, characteristics of his kids and he brings chastisement upon us. That's not punishment. And, and get this... God the Father never punishes His children. He corrects His children. There's no punitive action against the child of God. The punitive action occurred once. And that was on Christ on the cross. 
The wrath of God was poured out once and for all on Jesus to where there is not one drop of the cup of God's wrath left for us to drink. Once we come to Christ, that has been forever removed. And he remains a reconciled father through thick and thin, never to change. And it's the personal nature of the relationship that allows us with boldness, not presumption, to come to him. That we're able to cry from the depths of our sorrow even, Abba, Father. Because we know him in the context of the personal nature. Does you find it interesting that in, in Mary Magdalene at the resurrection, Mary Magdalene loved Jesus, loved, loved him immensely. She was very grateful. What happened to Mary Magdalene? He, he tossed seven demons out of her. She was very grateful for the ministry of the Lord Jesus in her life. And now he's dead. And she's crushed. His best, her best friend, her Lord, is gone. And she, she's, she's at the tomb. And she even, she even asked for the gardener, who it wasn't the gardener. She even asked for the gardener, well, tell me where you've taken him so I'll carry him away. Do you actually think that this, this young woman, this woman had the strength to carry the body of Jesus? But she had such a deep affection for him. She was going to do anything she possibly could for the body of her now dead master. And what does Jesus do to her? He appears to her. First words to the first person outside of the resurrection. And he looks at her and he says these words. In that day you ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father in your name. For the Father himself loves you. Well, actually, actually, let me back up. John, John 20, verse 17. She, he said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father. And notice this, your Father. Mary is now from a state of grief to an overwhelming sense of fear and joy. Why? Certainly because she sees Jesus but also because Jesus has just extended the paternal relationship of God to her, saying, he is not only my father, he's yours. Friends, that's who the father is to us, is that we have a heavenly father, and the personal nature of the father-child relationship is that no matter where you go, and no matter what you encounter, you can always look up to heaven and cry out, Father, and he will always be there. Because he's reconciled forever. He will never change in that relationship. He says, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And I will forever own them as my people, and they will forever own me as their God. And so we have the personal nature of the Father. Do you think of God like that? Do I think of God like that? That'll be tested in the fire of affliction. That'll be tested in the fires of suffering. When you don't feel God's presence and the, des- the devil wants to whisper, whisper accusations, wants to whisper condemnation, is you must cling to what he has said about himself. And what he says is that he is my father and he's your father. But also notice the love, the love of the father in the child relationship. I got ahead of myself. In John 16, this is what Jesus would say. 
to his disciples, in that day you'll ask in my name, and I don't say that you should ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. How do you think those scared disciples would have felt for Jesus who said, listen, I'm going away. You cannot come. I will not leave you as orphans. I will send the Spirit. The Father will send the Spirit. But I want you to know that the Father, and then he adds the word, the pronoun, himself loves you. Jesus loves for sure, but Jesus would make a distinction because there is a distinction in the Trinity. And he says, not only do I love you, but the Father himself loves you. And so you can rest in that tonight, Christian, is that your thoughts towards God and my thoughts towards God is first and foremost as a father, a reconciled father. It's the personal nature. He's ours individually as well as collectively. Secondly, the love of this this heavenly father, it is equally personal. It's directed towards each one of us. And then I want you to note the provision of the father, the provision. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You want to know how much the Father loves us? Not only in Ephesians chapter 3, He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ, but notice, notice the, the breadth of these spiritual blessings that He's given us in Christ. The reason why you're a Christian tonight is granted that God gave you repentance and faith, but the reason why you're Christians tonight because the Father gave you to Jesus as a gift of grace. Jesus would say six times in the high priestly prayer of John 17, all that you have given me, all that you have given me. Do you look at yourself tonight as a gift of grace to the the Son from the Father? And the Father has loved us so much that this is what He's given us in the Son. Verse 30. And because of Him, that's the Father, because of God the Father, You are in Christ Jesus, that that inseparable union. And look what the Father has done for us in Christ. He's became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The Father has loved us with a personal love. He's loved us in a relationship of love. And He's proved that love not only because He gave His Son to die for us, but in In Christ, he's given us everything that we need for now and eternity. He's given us wisdom. He's given us righteousness. He's given us sanctification. And he's given us redemption. That's who God is to us. And God wants us to think of him in that context. He wants us to think of him as a reconciled father. John Owen said this, quote, I mourn in secret under the power of my lust and sin where no eyes see me, but the Father sees me and is full of compassion. Do you see God full of compassion when you sin, when you fail Him, or do you see Him as getting ready to pounce upon you? Owen says, when I sin and nobody sees me but my Father, He sees me full of compassion. Assure thyself then, there is nothing more acceptable unto the Father than for us to keep up our hearts unto Him as the eternal fountain of all that rich grace which flows to sinners out of the blood of His Son. So even in our sinning, what do we meet with God the Father? The unchanging nature of His love. So, that's the Father. Our thoughts are to be towards God the Father 
as one of a personal nature that he never changes, of a personal love that provided us with all we need in his son. So let our thoughts towards God the Father be affirming to him in that context. But now what about the Lord Jesus? What is our thoughts to be of the Lord Jesus? And I'm not even going to talk about our Savior. I'm not even going to talk about him as our Savior. I hope that you are growing in your love and your knowledge of Jesus that takes you beyond salvation, that takes you beyond what he is as Savior. And I just want to mention two things, two things about the Lord Jesus and how we're supposed to think of him and how he would have us thinking of him. And the first one is his shepherding care, his shepherding care. We have the 23rd Psalm. Uh, the personal nature of Jesus as the shepherd. As the Father is personal, we also have the, the shepherd, the Lord Jesus is personal. The psalmist would cry out, the Lord is my shepherd. He's my shepherd. And Jesus would tell us in the shepherd uh, chapter, John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. He says that twice. And you say, why does he repeat that twice? Because he wants us to believe him. He wants us to believe he really is the good shepherd. Uh, and he carries a rod and he carries a, sh- a staff. And, and, and sometimes they hurt. Sometimes he has to pull us away from things we shouldn't be doing. And sometimes he has to bring it down upon us in chastisement. Uh, that doesn't mean he doesn't love us. That means he does love us. As he knows that left into our own folly, we're going to lead ourselves into some destructive event or or some destructive circumstance so he prevents that by being the shepherd who will correct us by the rod and correct us by the staff but he says i'm the good shepherd um twice in in verse 11 and verse 14 actually three times in john 10 11 and 14 he says i'm the good shepherd uh, those numerous times because he wants us to fully believe that he is that to us do you ever think about us it is the height it is the height of disrespect not to believe him. It is the height of disrespect not to believe him. I mean, to, to, to look at Jesus and he says, Jim, I'm the good shepherd. And by the way, in Psalm 23, I'm your shepherd. And I gave my life for you. I'll care for you. I'll provide for you. I'll guide you. I'll protect you because I'm the good shepherd. And then I go around fretting and worrying and all riddled with stress and anxiety as if I didn't have a shepherd. And I wonder how the Lord Jesus looks down and he would, I'm not sure he would do this, but he would shake his hand. He says, I told you I'm the good shepherd. Why are you laying awake in a lather? Everything's under control. I'm the good shepherd. I want you to look at Revelation chapter 7. See the Lord Jesus beyond your Savior. See him as as your king. See him as your prophet. But see him as your shepherd. Because sheep rightly describe us. But sheep are not very smart. Sheep get in places they shouldn't. Sheep are very timid. Sheep require constant supervision. We're rightly called sheep for a reason. And so isn't it amazing in God's goodness and grace that he would send his son to be a shepherd? A shepherd of such wayward people as us. 
constantly having to pull us back, constantly having to, you know, smiling at us and say, when are they going to learn? But take a look at Revelation 7, verse 13. Ian Hamilton, and if you've never heard him preach, I encourage you to listen to him preach. Ian Hamilton, uh, as well as the books he's written, he wrote uh, a wonderful devotional exposition on the 23rd Psalm. It's not very big. Uh, he said this, quote, Jesus was identifying himself as the long-promised shepherd who would personally seek the lost, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, and destroy the fat and the strong, end quote. Don't you find it interesting that Jesus, it says in the Gospels, that Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. If we understand more if our thoughts were more towards God as a benevolent father, and if our thoughts were more towards Jesus as the good shepherd, I would imagine that God would develop in our hearts a love for the sheep out there that's yet to be in his fold. And we would have eyes to see the lost like Jesus sees the lost. They're sheep. They're without a shepherd. We know the shepherd. We can go out into the world and say, let me tell you about the good shepherd. He calls you sheep, and he wants, he wants you to be in his fold. Let me tell you what he's done. It would open up so many warm conversations with the hurting people out there that simply are looking for hope. They're looking for, they're looking for a life preserver drowning in the affairs of life, and we can go out there because we know the good shepherd and that he's shepherding us and he's developing within us a heart like his so that we're able to look at the lost and see them as sheep and we want to go to them and tell them about him. It might be one of the most important acts of uh, developing our evangelistic skills is to have the shepherd's heart to sheep. Revelation chapter 7, look at 13. When one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Now, notice verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of them of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Two things about the lamb in, a, in, a, in the state of eternity. He never stops being a shepherd. He never stops being a shepherd. Jesus as a shepherd in this life will be Jesus as a shepherd through all eternity. So we'll always remain the identity as his sheep. Except the beauty of heaven, we won't be wayward sheep. We won't be sheep, as the hymn writer says, prone to wonder. We won't. But here's another thing about this. Look at verse 17. And he will be their shepherd. In Psalm 23, what does the shepherd have? He has a rod and a staff. What does he have here? He doesn't have that. It doesn't mention he has a rod and a staff. Why? It doesn't need it. There's no more correction. There's no more needing to be pulled away by the, by, by the guy, the, the rod, the staff. There's no more. That's gone. It's over with. All we now is bask in the goodness of the shepherd and, and his, his, his care for all eternity. So start asking God to show you more the shepherding role of Jesus in your life. 
Think more. Renew your mind with the shepherding role of Jesus. The Father as a personal relationship with Him in His benevolence. The, the Son, the Lord Jesus, in His shepherding care over you. But here's the second aspect about the Lord Jesus that we are to have thoughts about Him. And get a hold of this. His intercession. His high priestly office. You know, when someone tells you, I'm praying for you, it's very encouraging. Have you ever told someone you would pray for them and you forgot? Have you ever told someone that you would pray for them and you did pray for them, but you f- it may have been a one and done? It may not have been consistent. Hebrews chapter 7 Verse 23, the former priests were running, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Are you aware and do you think often that Jesus doesn't just sometimes pray for you? He always prays for you. He always intercedes for you. I, I kind of was thinking, what does he pray for? I mean, what, what does God pray for for me? And I can't remember who I read. I, I thought it was very insightful. Um, the writer, the scholar, the, the pastor, theologian, uh, he said that uh, Christ's intercession is that he would pray that his children would live out the application of his atonement. And I kind of thought about that. Well, what would he pray for otherwise? Would he not pray that we would persevere in the things that he's provided for us? Because remember what he told Peter, I pray for you. I pray for you. Satan's desire to sift you, but I pray for you. I pray that your faith would not fail. He did not pray that Peter would not fail because he knew that Peter needed to fail. He didn't pray for the preservation of Peter because he knew that Peter's failure would make him the Peter they needed to be. But what he did pray for is Peter's faith would not fail. And would that not be a glimpse of what Jesus may be praying for for us through all eternity or while he's there now interceding that we would persevere, that we would apply uh, his atonement. He would would apply what he's done for us in the daily affairs of life. See, I don't need to... I don't need to ask God for a whole bunch of things because the Bible has told me that he's given me all things necessary unto godliness. I need the wisdom to apply what he's already given me. I need to apply the love that he shed in my heart. I need to apply the strength that he's given me. I need the wisdom and discernment on how to live out what he's already provided for us in union with Christ. And perhaps Christ is praying, just like he did for Peter, that our faith would not fail, but our faith would mature so that we would cling to the very things that he's already given us so that we would live the Christian life with joy and influence. But at the end of the day, remember this. Is that Jesus is none of your Savior. He's your shepherd. And that he constantly prays for you. I don't know if there's anything more encouraging to know. That you have a God in heaven. Who's constantly interceding for you. When you don't have words to pray. He does. When you don't have anything to add to, uh, to say. When, you're, when the grief is so hard. And the sorrow is so deep. That he intercedes for you. And then the third, the third thing we, uh, of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit. 
And we are to have right thoughts about the Father, right thoughts about the Son, and right thoughts about the Holy Spirit. Uh, we got about 15 minutes. I really got to go fast, so hang on. So really hang on. Um, there's three things I want us to think about in regards to the Holy Spirit. It's because I think there's a real void of proper knowledge of the Holy Spirit. You go on to the, to, to, to the extreme that's out there, that it's all about the Holy Spirit and Christ is nowhere. Or you go to the other side of it and He's rarely mentioned. We're kind of afraid to talk about Him. He does move in people's lives. He, he is active. And I just want to give you three things about His ministry that He does for you. The first thing is the teaching ministry of the Spirit of God. Jesus would say in the Upper Room Discourse, John 14, He would say, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, uh, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Well, how is that fleshed out today in the age of grace in which we live? It's by this book. Because Peter would tell us in his second letter that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So then the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit comes from the illumination of this book. And I want you to think about him as being an ever-ready teacher. It's because he dwells within you, he has sealed you, and he stands ready to open up to you the wonderful things of God in his book. We should never open our Bibles without the prayer. Spirit of God, show me truth. Show me who Jesus is. Show me the Father. Show me truth that transforms. Never just, uh, just open your Bible without the, the, the spirit of dependence upon the spirit of illumination. Because that's one of his primary roles is his teaching ministry. However, the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit, which we have to get a hold of, is the Spirit of God is not given to us primarily as a comforter. He's not, he is that, and I'm not dismissing that. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 1 that the God of all comfort, He comforts us by His Spirit. And He's not primarily given to us to gift us. That's not what His... His primary ministry is to make much of Jesus. To make much of Jesus. In John chapter 15, verse 26 through 27, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. And the also connects it to what the Spirit's ministry is, which is to bear witness of Christ. So the also connects us to bearing witness about Christ. And so if we want to know that if we're walking in step with the Spirit, then ask yourself this question. Are you making much about Christ? Are you making much about the Lord Jesus? Because the Spirit of God's primary ministry is to make much of Jesus. He's okay with being in the back, back seat, so to speak. He's okay with not drawing attention to himself. If anything, the attention is away from him. Because he elevates the person of the Lord Jesus. J.I. Packer in his book, Keeping Step with the Spirit, he said this, quote, The distinct, constant, basic ministry of the Holy Spirit under the new covenant is to mediate Christ's presence to the believer. That is to give them such knowledge of his presence with them as their Savior, Lord, and God, that three things keep happening. Personal fellowship with him, personal transformation in his likeness, and the certainty of being loved, redeemed, and adopted into God's family by Him. That's beautiful. 
That's what the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is. And the third thing about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, like the Lord Jesus, He intercedes for us. And so I hope that you'll start thinking rightly if you're not about the Father and about the Son and about the Spirit. The Spirit wants to teach you. The Spirit wants to point you to Christ so that you can make much of Christ. And the Spirit intercedes for you. Romans chapter 8, 26. When we don't know what to say in our weakness, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. What a wonderful thought that in the, in the, triune, in the, in the triune nature of our God, two members of the Trinity pray for us. God the Son and God the, the Spirit pray for us. And they're praying to God the Father. And the God the Father isn't a reluctant listener. He has provided both of them. Now quickly, three thoughts that God has towards us. Yeah, three thoughts that God has towards us. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is equally important. One, that we have the right thoughts towards God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But it's important that we get a hold of what God thinks of us. Because if we get that right, it can't help but produce joy. And the first one is this. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 1. We'll, act, we'll be done in about nine minutes, I guarantee you, so... God's thoughts of us. Did you, have you recently thought that God sees you as his inheritance? He sees you, he sees me as his prized inheritance. Now we know what an inheritance is. It's something that, that is anticipated. That, you know, when someone, a loved one is going to leave an inheritance, you're just looking at the chops, it might be me. You know, but... Have you seen it from the standpoint that God looks down upon his children and sees us as his inheritance? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15. And Paul would even pray that we might know this. And why would he pray for believers to know this? Because we don't think like this. And we need to think like this. Verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And he says he's going to ask that the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of God, would give you the knowledge, that have your eyes open so that you would know these three things. Now remember, he is praying this for believers. You should make this a prayer for you, as I make it for me. He says that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that your eyes of understanding would be enlightened, that you might know first what is the hope to which he's called you, the hope in Christ, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of the power toward just who believe. So what is the immeasurable greatness of of his power, that's the resurrection power that empowers the Christian life. But notice that we might know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What is very interesting about verse 18, in that portion, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, is the Greek structure of this sentence, it allows for two meanings. It allows for the meaning that we are God's inheritance, and it also allows that we inherit through salvation, the many blessings that are unfolded in Ephesians chapter 1. And we're not going to read all that. I was going to, but verse 3 through 14 are all the blessings that we have in Christ. There is predestination. There is redemption. There is forgiveness. There is chosen. There is adoption. There is sealing. 
all those. And so when Paul would pray that we might know the glorious inheritance of the saints, he would have us to think and remember that God views us as his chosen people for his own possession as a prized inheritance. I don't know if anything will lift you out of the doldrums more than the God that looks at you as a trophy of his grace. We're trophies of his grace, as messed up as we are. Is that he still sees us as trophies of his grace. That someday he's going to finish the polishing job on us and put us on the mantle of his trophy case in heaven. And for all eternity, we're going to sing praises to the land that was slain before the foundation of the world. That we would give praises for the grace that saved us. And so think about yourself as a prized inheritance. It's an Old Testament concept too. Micah 7.18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and possessing, uh, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Constantly in the Old Testament, he looked at Israel, his inheritance. And in the New Covenant, we are his inheritance. And so start asking God to let you think about his thoughts towards you and that you are his prized inheritance. You know what I find that that does to me? I don't want to sin against such a God. I don't want to bring any discredit, and I don't want to bring a broken heart to a God who looks at me and says, you're a trophy of my grace. I've given you to my son, and I'm not ashamed of you. Yeah, but look how I live. Yeah, I know how you live. But look how I fail. I know how you fail. But I want to do better, but I don't. I know that. Someday you will. But in the interim, you're still my prized inheritance. Get a hold of that. His thought towards you is that of a prized inheritance. Secondly, his thought towards us is from Psalm 17, 18. You've probably heard of this idiom, the apple of my eye. You've probably even used it before. You said, well, he is the apple or she's the apple of my eye. It, it, it dates back over thousands of years. It comes from the Bible. It comes from actually Psalm 17, 8. Where the psalmist would say to the Lord in prayer, keep me as the apple of your eye. Do you have those thoughts towards God or thoughts that God knows thinks that of you? He sees you as the apple of his eye. And that basically means someone who is dear to us, who is precious to us. I, I, I was just overwhelmed to, to think that you, you not only call me your prized inheritance, but you look at me and you say, I'm the apple of your eye. I want to read something. It's a little lengthy. I still promise, I still promise to be done in about 10 minutes. Uh, this is from Spurgeon. And it's always good to quote Spurgeon. Uh, but he said this. He was commentating on the treasure of David about this apple of your eye. And think about your eye. Because he's going to give some, some medical background here. Spurgeon says this, no part, and bear with me, it's lengthy, but it's good. No part of the body more precious, no part more tender, no more carefully guarded than the eye, and of the eye, no portion more peculiarly protected from the central apple, the pupil, or as the Hebrew calls it, the daughter of the eye. The all-wise creator has placed the eye in a well-protected position. It stands surrounded by the projecting bones like Jerusalem encircled by mountains. Moreover, its great author has surrounded it with many tunics of inward covering, besides the hedge of the eyebrows, the curtain of the eyelids, 
and defense of the eyelashes. And in addition to that, he has given to every man so high a value for his eyes and so quick an apprehension of danger that no member of the body is more faithfully cared for than the organ of sight. Is that not true? It is the most tender. And Spurgeon says it is the most protected. You have the fortress of your bones. You have the eyelids. You have the eyelashes. And he says no part of the body is more alert to care for the other parts of the body than the eye. And he would end this. Thus, Lord, keep thou me, for I trust I am one with Jesus, a member of his mystical body, an apple of your eye. So start thinking about that. Start thinking about how God sees you. He sees you as his prized inheritance. Now remember, none of this is based on your conduct. And if you take this and say, oh, wow, I'm his prized inheritance. I'm the apple of his eye. I can just go live like I want to. Then you're no different than the Jews questioning Paul in Romans 6. What? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Are you crazy? No. If you understand and God gives us illumination that we are his prized inheritance and that we are the apple of his eye, the very last thing that you want to do is sin. In fact, you want to run from that. Why? Because the apple of his eye. I don't want to offend the one that loves me so much that he would call me the apple of his eye, the prized possession, the prized inheritance. And now the final thing, and this is the final thing, is God sees us as his forever family. His forever family. Jesus says in John 14, let your, not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You know what Jesus is doing? He's encouraging his disciples by promising them a place in the Father's house. A place in the Father's house. You can't get away from the beauty of the King James. There's mansions. But they're all in the Father's house. And here's a staggering truth. In John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And the reason why we do not know Him, the reason why the world does not know us, is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. Why would John say we are God's children now? Because we don't always act like God's children, but we're still God's children regardless of that. And at the end of the day, do you know what salvation truly is? Salvation isn't just removing God's wrath from you. God's salvation is Him creating a forever family. He's creating a choice people for his own possession that he's not ashamed to say, they're my kids. They're my kids. I paid a price for my kids, my only son, and I'm going to eventually bring the whole family together. And they're going to be my prized inheritance. And they're going to be the apple of my eye. And forever they're going to stand as trophies of what my amazing grace did. And if God can help us to think like that, how can we not impact the world for him?
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That we would take that good shepherd into a world of lost sheep. And say, let, us tell, let me tell you about the good shepherd. And by the way, let me tell you about the father's house. May God help us to think right. Think right about the Christian life. Think right about God. And have right thoughts of his thoughts towards us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this encouraging truth. And, and may we learn to think like this. Oh, it's so hard. Our mind is bombarded by so much things in the world that, that causes us not to think these good thoughts. May you help us to transform our mind uh, through your word. Uh, may you write your fear deeper in our lives. May our hunger for the word deepen. And may we even pray, Lord, help me to see myself as you see me. I know that's what you want for us. So may we do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's all stand.